Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we are uh, deep into our lessons here on Does God Exist with John Clayton. The last two lessons, uh, we have talked about um, which God are we talking about when we talk about the, the God of the universe or the God that created mankind. Today, uh, Mr. Clayton is going to talk about the various systems of religion uh, that have existed in our world and exist today and what kind of design do they have compared to uh, the uh, system of Christianity and of the Bible, the one that we find in the Bible. So he is going to do some comparative um, analysis of uh, current religions in the world um, and maybe even um, some of our, our de the denominations that exist uh, in our country and in the world uh, today as well. Uh, focus, if you will, on what he does in regard to the differences in how these religions approach God, how they approach nature, how they approach the nature of man, um, how they approach relationships, um, and how they approach um, just the, um, the status of man regarding uh, compared to God and the status of man compared to uh, the creation uh, as a whole. So this first one is called System uh, Design. Welcome to the Does God Exist video program, program number 19. This is a continuation of our discussion of which God. And if you haven't watched numbers 17 and 18, I would urge you to do so before you watch this presentation because this is sort of based upon what we have said in the previous two programs. We've talked about how we can know there's a God. We have tried to respond to ways of evaluating paranormal claims. And then we started talking about which God. When Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life, no one comes but the Father but by me. What evidence do we have that that's true? In our age of pluralism and the belief of many people that there are many paths to God, why should we believe Christianity is any different or any better than any other system? We've talked about two general areas of evidence. We've talked about internal evidence, comparing what the manuscripts actually say in the Bible with what we see in the Koran, in the Vedas, in the Urantia books, in the sayings of Buddha, all of the other religious choices that are out there. And we've talked about checkability, scientific checkability. We've tried to emphasize that one of the important points here is to talk about what the system actually teaches. We're not talking about organized religion. We're not talking about what any particular denomination might teach. We're talking about what the Bible actually says. And in this session, what we'd like to talk about is what I call system design. Now, that, that's a, a Clayton term. I made that up. Based upon an experience I had one time, I was flying back from Dallas to Chicago, and my seatmate was a very wealthy Texan who had made a lot of money. And he was telling me how he made all his money. And he says, you know, if something works, we try to make sure we understand why it works, because then we can use why it works in other areas, and it will help us be successful in those areas as well. And I said to him, well, I do the same thing. I do the same thing. Because I follow a system that works, and I'd like to demonstrate that to you. Let me say again, as we engage in this discussion, one of the problems we get into is that people will say, well, this is not a very tolerant presentation. And I want to emphasize again, tolerance does not mean you can't discuss differences. Tolerance does not even mean you can't criticize other systems. Tolerance is when you allow a system different than yours to exist 
in peace and in harmony. And I have no intention here of denigrating or berating any other system, but I do want to encourage you to think about what these other systems do. Some time ago in Natural History magazine, there was an article in which there was a discussion of the Hindu belief system. This is a picture that was contained in the magazine. And by the way, we have a printed copy of this in the appendixes that I have mentioned to you earlier. Appendices that contain the pictures you're seeing now, as well as the list of scriptures and re records in the, in the various religious manuscripts we've talked about in previous areas. But in this article in Natural History magazine, you have a structure of Hindu society. It is a caste society. At the top of the society come the priest, then come the warriors, then come the merchants. And on the very bottom of the society are the untouchables. If you're an untouchable, then you are not allowed to go to school. You are not allowed to be an artist or a musician. Your entire life will be spent cleaning out toilets, cleaning out sewers, doing the most horrible, the most menial, the most dirty, difficult jobs possible. National Geographic, in January of 2000 and nine had an article about the untouchables. And what's interesting in that discussion is that they showed what the result of following that system has been. Think about it logically. If you have a group of people that no matter what their talent is, that no matter what their circumstance is, they are always consigned to being an untouchable, not able to be educated, not able to be professional, always spending their lives in the most menial jobs. What will that do to that culture, to that society? And what has been the history of following that system? And how open has that system been in recent years to change? I have an upper caste Hindu priest who's a friend of mine, and he wrote down what Hindus believe. This is available again on our appendixes that have been mentioned. And because of time issues here, I won't go through all of these things here, but what I would encourage you to do is to secure a copy of this, which you can do on our website. And again, that's on our website, doesgodexist.org, in the correspondence course, Appendix B, and read through it. And ask yourself, what will this do for our culture in which it is believed, it is followed? How will this affect the lives of men and women that are a part of this culture? Compare that with what has happened in Christianity. Another thing that is there, incidentally, is a, a listing that has been published by the Dalai Lama. This was in June of 2001, in which he states his belief system. There is no God or supreme creator. In the viewpoint of the Dalai Lama, God does not exist. It is basically in this form, an atheistic philosophy. Now, I realize that many Buddhists would not agree with that, and that the concept of a personal God has been brought in, in recent years, to modern-day Buddhism. But again, I would encourage you to look through the statements that are given here and see if the statements make sense to you. Will they build a society? Will they enrich a culture? Will they be a part of the building of a society that benefits and treats all individuals as equal. And then the Quran. And again, in the appendix that I've been talking about, there is a list of these scriptures. And I would encourage you, don't take my word for it. Get a copy of the Quran. The one that I'm talking about is the one that Penguin Classics has put out, which is, I think, most faithful to the original writings of the Quran. And as we look at these passages and as we discuss them, let me emphasize another point to you. I have many Muslim friends. They would not agree with what, for instance, Osama bin Laden taught about these passages. They would not agree with the Muslim terrorist, the extremist. I'm not suggesting to you that all Muslims do this. I'm not suggesting to you that they would even endorse this. There are the Sunnis, there are the Shiites, and there are the Sufis. The Sufis are the dominant Muslim group in the United States. And their belief is that these statements are made 
And the statements are found to be philosophical, theological. So the concept of making war is a debate, is a war of words, not a physical war. What I'm talking about is what the actual document says, what makes sense with the history of Muhammad, and how it would be logically interpreted by people who live in those cultures. Muhammad was a military genius. When I took ROTC in college, they presented to us some of the things that Muhammad did and some of the strategies that he used, some of the great military conquest that he was a part of. With a very small army, he defeated a huge army on several occasions because of his military genius. So a statement like making war in the minds of someone who is a military genius would suggest it is in fact a war. And obviously, in the 20th and 21st century, we have had people who have used the Quran as a basis of justifying this type of conduct. There are other passages which present the same concept. And not only are there concepts that talk about making war, but there is a specific sense of attack. Notice this one. Slay the Christians and Jews. Now again, you can say, well, that refers to intellectual superiority. You're going to beat them, you're going to slay them in debate. Well, that's a possibility, but the fact of the matter is that Muhammad as a military leader would be more likely to be talking about the actual process of jihad. And that certainly is the way it has been interpreted by many Muslims. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that kind of statement. When Jesus presented his teachings, what he said was, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. As much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and compare it with the teachings of Muhammad. There is a radical difference in the sense in which they are presented. It's also interesting to notice that violence permeates the Quran in terms of daily society living. This passage in the table in Surah number 5 is something that was practiced by the Taliban. When they had control of Afghanistan, the sports arena on every Friday night consisted of people who had their hands cut off because they had been caught in theft. I had a friend who traveled extensively in the Middle East and was in Turkey one time and he was in one of these bazaars. And as he was looking around in this place, he happened to notice a young man about 12 years old who was shoplifting. He was stealing things, putting them in his coat. And my friend is wondering what he should do. I mean, he sees the crime being committed, but he's an American and he's in a very difficult place and he doesn't know whether he ought to get involved. Well, as it turned out, he didn't have to worry about it because the owner saw what was happening and ran over and grabbed the young man and started shouting some things in Arabic and pretty soon there were five or six other men that came in and this young, the child, the 12 year old, is screaming and twisting and trying to get away. They took this child out in front of the store, they laid his arms across a log and they took out a machete and amputated his hands. It's in the Quran. And I think it's difficult to say, well, this is some kind of symbolic thing. It is a violent, abusive, retaliatory system. Not all Muslims believe it, not all Muslims would follow it, but in the Quran there is that distinction. And look at the position of woman. In the United States, women have had a hard time establishing equal rights. The concept that a woman should be paid the same thing as a man for the same job has been hard in coming, and I understand that. The fact of the matter is that in the biblical record, women were treated as being equal. I mean, we read things like there is neither male nor female, there is neither bond nor free, we are all children of God. Read the passages in Galatians and Ephesians and look at the equality that is involved. The very nature of polygamy suggests a viewpoint of women that is unfortunate. Osama bin Laden had 15 wives, as I understand it. His father, I am told, had 79 wives. What does this do to the position of woman? And since men and women are born in equal numbers, roughly, if one guy has 79 wives, there are 78 guys out there with no wife. What does that do to a society? Does it bring stability? 
Does it bring a, a positive relationship among peoples? One of the reasons I think they've been able to secure people who would put bombs on themselves and, and walk in on a suicide bomber is because if you're a man and the only promise you have of ever having sexual gratification and having a, a, a wife is, is to die and then you'll have a harem of beautiful women, it's not difficult to understand why they've been successful in recruiting if you can convince people about the validity of that position. But there is a radical difference in the concept of marriage between the Muslim system and the Christian system. In the Bible system, you go all the way back to Genesis 2 and, and verse 24. And we're told there that a man and a woman, that they shall leave their mother and the two shall become one flesh. And throughout the New Testament, the concept of marriage being something special, something beautiful, something sacred, where women have a special relationship to the man, is emphasized strongly. In 1 Corinthians 7, the concept of meeting each other's sexual needs, and it's not just, you know, it says not only that the, that the man should have access to the woman's body, but that the woman should have access to the man's body. There's a, an equality in the concept of what the position of woman is. A man by the name of Schmidt has written a book called Under the Influence. And if you have a question about the effect of Christianity on society, on the role of women, I would strongly urge you to get a copy of that book and read the history of what Christianity has done for women. And by the way, one of the things that is available from our program is a bibliography which has a complete listing of all these kinds of books that you can investigate for yourself. The point is that the role of women is very different. And the position of women as an object is radically changed in the Christian system from the time in which it existed. It isn't only the, the question of the structures that are brought into these various societies, but it's also the question of influence as well. Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. What has been the effect of following Christianity? I would suggest to you that Christianity has been responsible for science. You go back and you read the writings of Isaac Newton, Pascal, Lavoisier, people who were famous in initiating the scientific age in which we live. And what you're going to see is that repeatedly they said things like, I know God has created the universe with intelligence, with order, with purpose. I am going to try to understand it. And you see even people like Albert Einstein, who was not a Christian, but who said things like, God does not play dice. The point is that there has always been that framework that there was intelligence, that there was purpose. We may have disagreed about what that intelligence was, but in the Christian system there has been that radical difference. And there's also the difference in practical application of the system itself. Look at the relationship between man and God. Go to the Hindu. Go to the Buddhist. Go to any religious system that teaches reincarnation and ask them, what is the relationship between God and man? You know what they'll tell you? It's up to man to reach God. Now, whether God is nirvana or Brahman, whatever the objective is, it is man's responsibility to reach God. And if man doesn't make it, if man doesn't accomplish it, then man is recycled. Reincarnation in one form or another. The whole concept of reincarnation is based upon the relationship that man must reach God. Do you remember the biblical perspective? The important thing to understand about the biblical perspective is that God is seeking man. We have the concept of, of the shepherd and his sheep. You see statements like, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. An interested, involved, personal God not willing that any should be lost, but that all should inherit eternal life. That's beautiful. And it's peculiar to the, to the system that is taught in the biblical record. Look at the relationship between man and nature. You know, we talk for 30 minutes in each of these presentations. 
it's hard to say when you're watching it what the number is, but today, as I speak, the death rate on planet Earth of people dying from starvation is roughly 400 people an hour. Do you realize that in the 30 minutes we talk that some 200 people die of starvation on this planet because they don't have enough to eat? And I know sometimes that's much higher and sometimes it's much lower. But whatever it is, it's incredible. And the problem is not food. If we spent the money growing food that we spend blowing each other up and preparing to blow each other up, we could feed ten times the population the earth has on it right now. The problem is not food. But one of the problems is that in many cultures, the concept is that nature is God. You're part of nature, you're part of God. Don't build a dam on the river, you'll make the river God angry. You remember what God said to man back in Genesis? Subdue the earth. Have dominion over the fish, over the fowl, over the beast of the earth. Now, he didn't say contaminate it. He didn't say pollute it. Matter of fact, what he said was, take care of the garden. Dress it and keep it. But the fact that for the most part, we don't go to bed hungry. For the most part, we live in great comfort. The highest standard of living the world has ever known. All of that is because our ancestors believed and did what God said. How can anybody that's been privileged to live in the United States of America rationally question the biblical system when everything we have comes from that system? And let's look again at the relationship between man and woman. Gentlemen, do you believe you could have the kind of relationship you want with that one woman if you were sharing her with 24 other women? Only Jesus Christ taught as the ideal, as what God intended from the beginning, one man, one wife, for life. There were others that tolerated it. There were even some who encouraged it. But Jesus said from the beginning, this is what God intended. I was married to my wife, Phyllis, for 49 years. And let me tell you from personal experience, that that system works. The problem in our culture has been that for many people, every time they get in an argument, they go to the divorce court instead of going to the knees. And they never learn what marriage is. And let me tell you, as a man who's lived a very long time, been married less than 10 years, you still don't know what it is. <laughs> marriage is something that you build. A good marriage is something that doesn't happen by accident. It happens by purpose. But it works. And look at the relationship between man and God. Isn't it a wonderful thing? Isn't it a beautiful thing that we don't need a great big huge cathedral in which to worship God? Wherever two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name, there will he be also. That's beautiful. And it's peculiar to the teachings of the New Testament. Look at the relationship between man and God. Isn't it a wonderful thing that no matter what sex you are, no matter how much education you have, no matter what language you speak, what your, what your IQ is, no matter even what you've done, you have as much right to talk to God as anybody else on a one-to-one -one basis. Isn't it a wonderful thing that every nation has equal access to God. Christianity is not an American institution. It didn't originate in America. I think what has happened in America, the good things have been attributed to Christianity and can be. But Christianity functions in all cultures, in all situations. Romans says it well, there is no respect of persons with God. Now the last thing that I would want to present to you is that Christianity is a workable system. And in our next presentation, we're going to go into that in detail. But one of the things about it being a workable system is that it changes lives. And I'm speaking to you as a man whose life has been changed. What is the process of dealing with people who have an alcohol problems in different religious systems? 
In Islam, what happens to someone who has a problem with public intoxication? What is the result of someone being caught in adultery? What happens in all systems to someone who is an outcast of the society? My suggestion to you is that there's a radical difference between what is suggested in the Christian system and what you see in these other systems. Because in the other systems there is retaliation. There is, in some cases, capital punishment. Jesus talks about forgiveness. When Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother when he, when he does something awful to me? Seven times? And Jesus says, I'm saying to you, 70 times 7. And it didn't mean 490. It meant there's no limit to your forgiveness. That's beautiful. That's radical. And for those of us who have struggled with life, it's a beautiful thing that the Christian system tells us to change our lives. That God is not interested in retaliation. That He wants us to be different. He wants us to make a new start. I live my life as a militant, aggressive, obnoxious atheist. At the end of this series, I will tell you why I left atheism. That's autobiographical. It doesn't prove anything. It's not designed to prove anything. It's just to tell you a little more about me. But I will tell you right here that my life was bad. It was wrong. It was destructive. I was taught that it is survival of the fittest. I remember going to one of those nature programs that the Audubon Society puts on with my mother. And there was this deal where the angler fish has an appendage and it holds out and wiggles it and a little fish comes up thinking it's a worm and then the, the angler fish eats the little fish. <laughs> and my mother said to me, see John, that's the way you survive in today's world. You have to camouflage. You have to, you have to do what you have to do to look after number one. You have to be the best to survive. And, and I lived that. And when I was young and when I was fit, it was attractive. When you could use people because you were young and strong and so forth, it was positive. But there ultimately becomes a time when you reap the consequences of that, when you're not the best, you're not the fittest. I became a Christian before I reached that point, but intellectually I knew it was coming. And I didn't want to live in a world like the one I was creating. I needed to change my life. And Christianity gave me the capacity to change it. I have dealt with people who have been addicted to drugs, addicted to sex, addicted to a destructive lifestyle. People who had tried everything to try and change their lives and had not been able to do so. But when they became a Christian, and when they tapped into the resources that God gave them, they were able to change their lives. So I speak to you as a man whose life has been changed. I refer you to the countless testimonies that are out there of people whose lives have been changed, moved from something very destructive to something very positive. The system works. This is evidence of inspiration. I am a Christian. Not because I inherited that belief. But when I looked at the internal writings of the Bible, when I checked out the integrity of the scriptures, both scientifically and in every other field that I could investigate, and particularly when I looked at the system that Christianity taught and what it leads to and how it would impact me as a life, the Christian system was the only system I could find that works. I am a Christian because of the evidence. I'd like to mention to you that we have a variety of things available to you. I have mentioned the correspondence course several times to you. One of the other things that is available to you, if you're interested, is a written copy of my own personal story of why I left atheism. If you're interested in reading this online, you can do so by going to doesgodexist.org. Or if you would like to have one mailed to you, you can contact us at the address you see on the screen right now, and we'll be happy to mail one to you. The last thing we want to do in this series is we want to talk about the church. Does the church make sense? Does it make any reasonable sense at all that we should go to church? I've had lots of people that say to me, yeah, okay, I can believe in God, but I get a lot more out of sitting in the woods and looking around than I do going to church. Well, I understand that, but I think it's a very nearsighted view. 
And I'd like for us to talk a little bit about does what we're told to do in the church make any sense at all? And I call this God's finest design. As you may or may not be able to tell, uh, we are doing things a little bit differently today. Uh, this lesson is being taped uh, because it will be uh, shown actually um, the next week from today when it's being taped uh, during the, the Thanksgiving uh, break on Wednesday. Just before Thanksgiving, Chris will be out of town. So we decided to go ahead and tape this lesson uh, today. Um, so we only have, uh, we're using his camera as opposed to his um, iPhone, and we only have uh, one uh, microphone. And so we will share that um, if, we, if we go back, uh, go back and forth. Um, otherwise, everything will be, uh, be the same. You know, we, there was a saying uh, back in, uh, I'm sure, during the, uh, oh, um, when Rome was in power, that all roads lead to Rome. And it was a rather arrogant uh, statement on the part of Romans, but it, it had some credibility. Number one, Rome was the uh, premier power at the time uh, of the turn of the first century there. And uh, they uh, con had conquered numerous, numerous uh, lands and, and nations. And not only that, Probably not coincidentally, they built a bunch of roads. So, uh, and some of those roads are still in existence today and uh, function quite, uh, quite well over the centuries uh, for their durability and, and preservation. But the statement that all roads lead to Rome is an, is an implication that, that uh, you can get to Rome from anywhere. Mr. Clayton referred to uh, a statement about uh, very early in this presentation. He says that there many people believe that um, heaven is there to be uh, obtained, and it really doesn't matter the road you take. It really doesn't matter what you do to get there as long as you get there. It really doesn't matter which avenue you pursue, which route you pursue, because they all end at, at heaven and eternal life and paradise. Um, and what he is attempting to illustrate in this lesson and uh, maybe in, in uh, last week's uh, lesson as well, was this, uh, this notion that um, those roads differ those roads are decidedly different from one another. And when he talks about systems um, and comparing these systems and which ones work and which ones don't and which ones make sense and which ones are consistent with uh, the Word of God, I think he does a good job in pointing out certainly contrasts and differences and I think even uh, as a logical conclusion that we can see is that some of those other roads are quite inferior and probably are not going to get them to where um, the Christian system will take you. And certainly not uh, according to the road that's laid out uh, in, in Scripture, uh, in the Bible. Um, and what he does early on also is he makes a distinction about what what man teaches about God and what the Bible says about God. And then he lays out some of those other systems that, that men have claimed <clears throat> about God and how to achieve um, that, that eternal life, nirvana, or whatever it, it's called in other religions, um, versus what the Bible actually says about that. He, he also points out, uh, and I printed these off, that um, if you go on to the Does God Exist website, there are various uh, clickable headings up at the top, and I think one is online courses. I think that's what I clicked on. If you'll click on those, um, uh, some text will come up, and then right down below the text is, is a series of, of thing, uh, resources that you can click on. The very last two are those two things that he mentioned, Appendix A and Appendix B. Um, he didn't talk a whole lot about Appendix B, although maybe alluded to a couple of things here. 
Appendix B uh, talks about difficult passages in the Quran. And let me say uh, up front here, uh, he made a very uh, strong and convincing statement that when you take the statements within the Quran and when you see how people, different sects of, of Muslim, of the, of the Islam religion, treat some of those passages. Some of them treat them literally, and many of them say, well, no, they were just figurative, or uh, it was a way of, of saying in figurative language, you know, didn't really mean war, didn't really mean battle. Uh, it was kind of like Paul referred to, you know, the, the battle of the flesh against the spirit. It's not a, not a real battle where blood is shed, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a contention. It is a striving. And uh, so he really didn't mean that. And um, one of the things that, that he does here in this is he looks at um, these passages from not only the Quran, but also from the Hindu beliefs and the Buddhism uh, beliefs and then uh, Islam and Christianity compared in about 10 pages of, of text. And he's got these little charts and tables and he says, uh, here's the subject. Here's the quote from, from their source, and here's the location. And then he uh, says there are some difficulties uh, with some of the things that are in here, whether they be figurative or literal. And so he does that in Appendix B. Um, and he does that for each of those, those three uh, primary religions um, and compares it to Christianity, Islam, uh, compared to Christianity on those last couple of pages. And, and so... Um, He's showing you that, that if indeed these other religions are man-originated, uh, that they did not originate in the mind of God, and that he inspired man to write this down, then it does contain flaws. God's Word does not. And no matter how many times people want to tell you, oh, the Bible is just full of errors and so forth. I mean, you can't trust it. Um, John Clayton said at the end of that tape, he has looked at the Bible from every scientific, medical, uh, astronomical um, way he can. From every direction, he tried to disprove it with all the science ability he had within his within him and he was unable to do so and he looks at um, he looked at the the evidences internally and externally support for the Bible as a historical document he looked at the Bible's ability to um, millions over the years transform people's lives with uh, the teachings therein. And he, and he put all of that into a bundle, and he'll give us more of that in the very last lesson in this series. And he said, only one conclusion. The Bible is the Word of God, and Christianity is a religion that is far superior to any other religion that man has ever devised or come up with or discovered or, or uh, been exposed to. So that's his conclusion, and that's what the, these series, this series of lessons is all about. We can believe that God does exist, and that the God of the Bible is that God that, that we should owe everything to. Did you want to say anything, Chris? <clears throat> you might be interested to know that, uh, or maybe you already know this, but... Uh, when before Muhammad died, there were uh, scribes writing down some of his sayings and things like that, and they had found them in books even before he died. And so many of them were contradictory that he rounded up all of them except the one authorized version, for lack of a better term, and he burned all of those and killed all the people who wrote them. And then even after this, there's still multiple contradictory. Um, not statements, although those are there, but contradictory books, like contradictory editions of the Quran uh, that are still running around today. And, and it's not we're not talking like two or three, we're talking like 12 or 50, you know, and there's yeah. a lot of them. So even if uh, 
uh, just to add to what Clayton was mentioning, the internal evidence against the Quran being inspired is blazingly obvious, while the internal evidence for the Bible being inspired is also blazingly obvious in the opposite direction, I guess. Um, he mentioned last week, or he will mention, I'm, I'm talking in the future uh, right now um, because we're taping this, um, uh, the idea that, oh, I just lost it trying to explain what I was meaning by talking in the past, um, and it had to do with Koran. I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, maybe I'll come back to that. The other appendix um, is the one that he spent a little bit of time talking about, and it, in it, to me, it it fr it frames better this comparison. You talk about a document that was written 600 A.D. ish, uh, the the Koran. Um, you talk about uh, documents the he calls the Vedra, I believe, is the mm -hmm. Hindu Hindu source, and I think they go even back uh, back further than that. Um, and he says, in all of those cases, if you are not talking about inspired individuals, the interpretation of what was written at that time was based on what man knew at that time. And, it, and when people talk about this this idea that 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 figurative language uh, separates uh, the Islam of the past to the Islam of today, um, that is a way to explain it, but it's not real credible because when when I write something down, I can give it to Chris. And he can try to explain it to somebody else. And somebody else will say, well, you know, I think it means this. And they can have some sort of discussion about, about what I meant. But they both can't be right, especially if they contradict. And the only one you can go to to find out is Rick, because Rick is the one who wrote that down and composed it. Now, in poetry... You can say, well, well, that poem speaks to me this way. Okay, that's my interpretation. That's how I apply it. The person writing the poem meant it more than likely one way. And so we have to, we have to go back to the context. We have to go back to the original person, Muhammad, to see what he meant. And he makes a, a um, Clayton makes a very good point that Muhammad was an, um, an extremely effective military uh, conqueror. And if you go back and look at history, and I remember this about reading about this in, in history classes, um, the Muslim religion was spread ruthlessly. <laughs> and I, I think it was, you know, deny God and accept Islam or die. And so many, 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 many converts were made that way. People didn't want to die, and so they converted to, to Muslim. And it was a very physical, aggressive, militaristic, um, as he said, um, retrib uh, retributive, retribution uh, type of, of, of religion. And um, so that's what Muhammad was dealing with. That's what he knew. That's what he wrote down. And if uh, modern-day Muslims uh, want to uh, say, well, no, that, that, that's figurative and we don't believe that's, that's um, literal anymore, then it would really be nice if all of them uh, would, would believe that. Because we know that there is a sizable portion of Muslims, I think, was it uh, in the, the lesson before this, where he talked that there are three, and it wasn't, I don't think it was in this one, three branches of, of those, and two of those are, are very uh, militaristic uh, in their approach. So, uh, and jihad is something that you find in the Quran uh, throughout, and it is the sheer domination of the world. And that's the goal of Islam, is to dominate the world. <clears throat> God wants all men to repent. That's his goal. That's his plan for mankind. But he's not going to force it on people. We know, and we've talked in, in these classes about free moral agency, that God will not force anyone to 
conform to Christianity. That's not the way Christianity is set up. And and when you talk about these other uh, religions, these other systems, having um, a whole different attitude toward man and his relationship to God, um, Christianity is a breath of fresh air. I mean, it is it is light and life compared to these other religions. So, and go, going back to that original point, when, when you say there are many roads to heaven, um, be careful about saying that. Know what you mean. And if it means that it really doesn't matter what religion you follow or what denomination you follow, um, um, just make sure that whatever road you're on is the road that matches the path prescribed in the New Testament. That's, that's the only source you have. And when people start embellishing or changing or improving or modifying in some way um, the words of God, the words of Christ, the words of the apostles, then your eyebrows should raise and you should say, oh, let's look at what it says. And as we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, in 1 Corinthians, was it 12, that says, I write nothing to you other than what you can read and understand. And that's Paul's statement. Yeah, it was Paul. Maybe Peter had a different idea. I write nothing to you other than what you can't read and understand. No, they all wrote things that we can read and we can understand. He talked uh, a week or so ago about the clarity, the conciseness of the Bible, the uh, fog index that he talked about, where these other religions come in at at a really, really um, unclear, and, and Chris just talked about the contradictions in, in the different versions of the Koran, and uh, the readability and the clarity that uh, the Bible is written in is just um, almost off the, off the board, uh, way up in those upper, upper numbers. So he wants us to know his word. He wants us to read his word. He wants us to understand his word. He wants us to obey his word. And if it's confusing and if it's foggy and if it's unclear, it's going to be difficult for us to buy it because it's God speaking to his creation. And if he doesn't know how to effectively speak to his creation, then he's probably not a God worthy of following. Let me be clear. He is. He, and and here's, a, here's a point here that I just wrote down at the end. I was going to make at the end, but let me make it now. Um, Mr. Clayton talked about uh, marriage, that um, God created the institution of marriage. The second chapter of Genesis. So is it important? Yeah. Let's create the world. Let's create man and woman, and let's create this institution of marriage. This is how it's supposed to work. This is how I created man to work, to be in a relationship with a woman, to have that relationship separate and apart from father and mother to leave and cleave to um, one another in, in that support. So he created it to work, and it does work when we do it right. Um, many times people will point to um, some passages in the New Testament about uh, the woman should, uh, should um, be in submission to the husband. We're not going to get into an explanation of how that works and why it was said at that time or any of the other passages about the women keeping silent in, the servant, that in service. That's not my point here. My point is, let's talk about that relationship. And the one that the passage that, that lays that out most clearly is this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, there you go. A woman has to be subject to the, to the man. For the husband is the head of the wife, uh, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives ought to be uh, to their husbands in everything. Husbands, he's spoken to the wives, now he speaks to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Not because she's subservient 
to you or subject to you, but in the way that Christ loved the church, husbands, you love your wife. Christ gave himself for the church. Not only did he give up his uh, last breath on the cross for the church, he lived his life for the establishment of the church. So, husbands, love your wives as much as Christ loved the church. So a strong statement there to the husband. He goes on. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Christ loving the church there. That he might present himself, the church, uh, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So, husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. Where have you heard that before? Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, might, strength. Greatest commandment. Second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a precondition, a presupposition imposed there. It's a given that we love ourselves. Everybody loves ourselves unless we have some problem up here. We care for ourselves. We feed ourselves. We clothe ourselves. We take care of our health unless we have some sort of, of uh, um, deficiency in the ability to do so. So there's a presupposition that we love our own bodies and our own selves because there's a self-preservation situation. The command is love others as you love yourself. The command here is love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Then Paul repeats, For this cause a man shall leave a father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He concludes with these two verses. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church, and comparing it to the marriage relationship. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. Let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Okay? So there is this mutual love, this mutual devotion. And then I'm just going to quickly, there's one other passage in, in Philippians that has always impressed me. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Hmm. Went to a higher level there, didn't it? I have to love you as I love myself, but I have to consider you more important than myself. Is there a difference? Maybe. Um, and I don't know why, if a man treats his wife not according to Ephesians 5.22, why his wife wouldn't qualify as an, just another person in Philippians 2.3? Value others more highly than you value yourself. And Now that's difficult to do. It is really difficult to do, especially since we are into self-preservation by nature. But it works. God has set it up so that if all of us treat others more highly than ourselves or value them more highly than ourselves, think what kind of world this would be. Everyone would be working for the betterment of other people. But we don't find that. We find even in marriage relationships, um, males, due to a misinterpretation, uh, misapplication of some passages in the New Testament, um, dominating their wives, being um, unloving and uncaring for them to the point where the wife is miserable in that relationship. And that's sad. That is not the way God planned it. God planned it so that the two of them will share, will love one another, 
will value the other as highly as they value themselves, but even more important than themselves if wives or husbands fall into the category of Philippians 2.3. I know that was a load. Do you have anything to say in that regard? Mm-hmm. That's good. You better not disagree. Okay. Uh, let me. We've got about five more minutes or so. Let me just make some other other uh, points here. Um, he talked about the caste system. He talked about the Dalai Lama saying that there's no god or no supreme being. He talked about the Quran and and Muhammad being that militaristic, aggressive um, leader of of that religion, founder of that religion. And then he talked about Jesus and Christianity. Love one another as you love yourself. Turn the cheek if someone smites you. Take your coat off and give it to them if they ask you for something. Do that as well. Live if at all possible, at peace with all men. Now, compare that to some of these others. Christianity was such, as we said, a a breath of fresh air to not only the Jewish system, which we know was rather punitive and legalistic and and, and law-bound in so many ways, to Christianity and the thought at the time, the ideals at the time, the writers at the time could not create a Jesus. They didn't have it within them, not even in their in their imaginations. I'm gonna I'm gonna assert that. Uh, I've read some things that that back that up, and I'm gonna assert that as a whole. It was not in man to come up with the idea or the notion or the story or the teachings or anything that a Jesus would come up with. Jesus had to be a real figure, historical figure. He had to be who he said he was or he was a liar or he was crazy. And everything about him and about his teachings and about the teachings from the followers who he left behind to carry out not only the remainder of his word committed to paper, but also the establishment of the church and its continued existence throughout the ages points to a source a lot higher than man. And so these systems that he talks about and comparing them, all all roads do not lead to heaven. There's only one, and that's Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All roads go to the Father. No, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's, a, that's as clear a teaching as possible. You leave Jesus out of the equation, you turn your back on God. Absolutely, that's... Uh... The, it's interesting that you put the definite article in front of each one of those. They're singular, right? The way, the path, the light, or the truth. Uh, you can't get to God without going through Jesus, the single door. He even calls himself the door in John 10. Um, so I, he, he's pretty clear. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it is amazing to me that when, when you look at the other major religions that are out there, um, how, how much, how superior uh, Christianity is. And that's not a haughty statement. It's just by comparison, it's a much nobler um, narrative, mm-hmm. but it's not a narrative. It's a much nobler truth. They would say, this is truth. This is how you achieve uh, that life. The Bible has a, a better way. <laughs> and as we know, uh, Hebrews spends uh, you know multiple chapters on uh, how uh, Christianity and Jesus is a better way Comparing it simply to God's way before, not let alone other religions uh, out there. A quick example of sorry, a, that's okay. A quick example of that is Hammurabi's law, right. right? It's this the oldest law system written down by man that we, that anyone's ever found, uh, and in that law system, he says, "Don't do things that are hateful to your neighbor." 
which obviously sounds pretty familiar to us, right? Jesus' command about the golden rule. But Hammurabi was a, maybe the first guy to say, don't do things that are, that, are, that are hateful to your neighbor. But notice that he says the negative form of what Jesus... All right, there you go. The uh, point, that I, the final point that I just wanted to add to Chris's point is uh, he, and he sparked something in my memory. Hammurabi's code was uh, reactive. It was, don't do this or this will happen. Jesus' code was proactive. Don't respond because something happens to you. You take the initiative. I don't, yeah, it's not the, what's the opposite of respond? Pond? No, <laughs> no it's not that. Uh, it, you act. You act yeah. first, and that's the more noble thing to do. You act positively and favorably toward that person, and then the natural response will be them responding positively to you. So, we're going to close up. Uh, we uh, will have another lesson next week, and we'll go back live uh, as well. So, thank you for tuning in. See you guys. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.